This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, to the Winter is Coming Game of Thrones podcast. I'm your host, Razor, and I'm here with Isis, Corey Smith, and Corey Phone, and we're here to talk about that amazing episode from Sunday night, The Spoils of War, but also, you could have called it The Spoilers of War. Ha ha ha, yeah, I did it. It's corny. That's why I did it. But that episode was leaked earlier in the week, and I will openly admit that I watched it and it kind of enhanced my viewing pleasure on Sunday night. I'm, I, I will say I don't care about it being a uh, leaked episode. It was still pretty enjoyable. Anyway, let's get right into the panel. Uh, Isis, just an off-the-top-of-your-head, uh, give me a rating on this episode. Where where does it land? And we'll get into the details later, but where does it land for you right off the top of your head? Right off the top of my head, top, top five episode amen agree absolutely agree and i've had since the episode was leaked online i guess what was it thursday or friday i watched it four times before it came on sunday night and i had a lot of time to drop the the hype and the hyperbole and i was like okay it's still in my top five uh cory phone where does it sit for you not that you've had time to digest uh i ooh, I, <laughs> I guess it's a really good episode. I thought we were going to do like a number ranking. Um, I'm trying to think. <laughs> well, give me give your me, number me... ranking then. How about give me your number ranking? Where does it go? I don't think it's in my top five, but it's definitely in the top like seven to eight. I would say. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, I because when I when I start thinking about the episodes that I think are better, obviously the finale last season the and Battle of the Bastards. Yes, those two are great. The Hard Home episode is outstanding. Watchers on the, the Wall. Watchers on the Wall, well, the Red Wedding episode is a gut punch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the episode where Brienne and the Hound fight, a lot happened in that episode. Indeed. indeed. I'm trying to think. I, I, I really love the Battle of Blackwater. I think that's one of the most underrated episodes. And it was like, their first nobody... big battle. Yeah, and then, of course, the episode where the the mountain and Oberyn fight also is outstanding. So yeah. I I just and that's off the top of my head without having prepared anything. But I, I mean this episode was really good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not that's not, bad. That's not bad coming from you, the realist of the podcast, and that's out of sixty plus episodes. So I'll take that. That's really good. Let's get right into the episode. Let's talk about where we began. Uh we kind of uh picked up right where Jamie left off the previous episode. 
Um, he's he's gotten rid of Olena. High Garden is out of the picture now, um, and the Lannister army is now in a big gigantic wagon train, all the way back to King's Landing. And Jamie and Bronn pick up with the great dialogue. I always love when these two are on the ca- on the camera together. They have a great back and forth, and you get you get the classic Bronn bringing up the fact that he doesn't have his castle yet. He doesn't have his his, his lady to marry, but he's got a big bag of gold. And uh, Isis, what did you think of Bronn and Jamie's interaction in this episode, especially in the beginning because it was great? Oh, absolutely! It was it was so classic Bronn, you know, kind of ribbing uh, Jamie and you know, kind of giving him the business. It, it, it's his. It's been his role since the very beginning of the since he's joined Game of Thrones. So I really enjoyed that. But what I loved about that is to see. The way he was on the beginning of the episode is a complete contrast of, you know, or I should say complete growth of his character um, throughout the entire, you know, couple of seasons that he's been in. You know, here he is. He's like the jokester and he's still that guy. You know, he's still the guy that's ribbon on him and everything. Um, But he also becomes a hero. And uh, and so I love the fact that there's just this, you know, contrast of. There's a lot more to this guy than than just meets the eye, but I absolutely love him. Just a mercenary who does things for gold. Absolutely, I mean that's who he who he was introduced as, and and now he he has had a total growth. I would say more of a growth than Sansa. Ooh. Oh. Oh man. Maybe you hit a little soft spot there, Uh, Corey Thone. What did you think of the continued joke of Rickon and Dickon? I mean that's kind of funny, and I'm glad they did it. Um, and that was, that was towards the end of the episode, but it's kind of a nice little running joke. And Jamie Lannister, uh, he's, he's kind of an, another character that, that's progressed and evolved as the, as the seasons have gone on. But, uh, you know, the new, the new Dickon is getting ribbed by, uh, Jamie and Bronn. Well, I mean, really that's, that's Randall's fault. What kind of... <laughs> What kind of asshole? What a dick my name's father Randall. to call his son Dick on. I, 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 my name's Randall, and I'm going to name my son Sam. I'm going to have another <laughs> son, and I'm going to name him Dick on. And it's like, who, who, who okayed this? What's wrong with the? Everyone else has normal names in that entire family that we know of, except for Dick on. I, I mean, it's a stupid name. I'm glad that they are pointing that out in the show. I hope that it's in the books like that too, and whenever that comes out. But I don't know if it will be. I feel like this is almost like making fun of some of the dumb names that we've heard over the course of the show. Anyway, oh god, yes, uh, please let that be true. Yeah, so I, I mean, it was funny. This I, I think I talked about when this season started. One of the things that I loved the most about the first couple episodes was that they did bring back these moments of levity, I guess, whatever, however you want to phrase it. These like comic moments that that don't feel too forced that bring a little bit of humor into a show that is more or less turning into just the hour of feeling like crap show. Yeah. So I, I'm definitely glad that that's happening. Uh, it, it makes the show feel less like a burden when the episodes are over because there are certain times in the show's history where when the show ended, you're just like, all right, well, I'm going to take a shower and cry in there. So nobody can see the tears <laughs> on my face. So. I feel like um, Corey Smith had a good analogy about his connection 
to the to the podcast because he's having a really bad time tonight. He said, if this doesn't get to work, I'm going to jump out the window like Tom. And, and that's kind of what I feel like sometimes with these heavy episodes. <laughs> I just want to go to a high-story high building and jump out the window because I feel really bad. And you're right. The brevity is or levity, whatever you want to say, it's been fun. It's been nice. It's made it lighthearted out of some really dark situations. And um, you kind of get that with the whole, uh, you know – they don't teach you that in fancy Lord school and all that kind of stuff. That was really great. There were some good moments. and uh, But let's move on to um, Dragonstone where we have Danny walking down the seawall with uh, Missande. And she brings up the fact that Missandei like, you know, we haven't heard anything from Grey Worm and, and the Unsullied. And then she, she brings in the whole, and yeah, we totally banged. Isis, that that was a great moment because, you know, not many people were like, hey, how's this going to work? There's not a full package down there for Grey Worm. Uh, but she seems pretty pleased, and Danny was very interested. Oh, yes. She wanted more details. The um, I love the fact that there was this little girl talk going on between those girls. And, like, you know, Danny was giving her, the, like, like, the look like, really? And and Masande's like, oh, yeah. And she's like, but – like, she wants to say, like, but how? Yeah. But she's like, okay, I'm going to get the details later. We'll talk a little bit more. And then she per- proceeds to go and look down and look at Jon Snow, who is looking like a wonderful freaking <laughs> popsicle that just needs to probably be licked. Oh, and, uh, and Danny is. probably wants to, and, and Danny probably wants to do the licking. So, um, yeah. You know who I, else I, wants to do some licking? Old uh, Dick and Tarly. Uh, <laughs> he takes a licking. So I felt, I felt like that was a really kind of subtle seb- segue into getting into, you know, them going into John and Danny um, going into the cave where we see John and Danny giving each other kind of hungry eyes. Like, it looked like it was, like, you know, kind of eye-fucking going on right there. <laughs> and then, and th- and and we already know the history John has with caves. Oh, shit, yeah. I mean, it, it is definitely his play. You know, that is definitely his area of expertise is is caves. So um, I felt like, you know, this is really a moment for, for John and, and Danny. And if you feel, if it makes you feel uncomfortable that the fact that, uh, you know, John and Danny are related, I'm going to tell you right now, this is this looks like this is the path that they're going with. And you're just going to have to get over it. I'm oh, not a no big fan doubt. of it. No doubt. It's happening. Because, it's happening. Yeah, because uh, David Benioff, one of the showrunners, even said in after the episode, he was like, "Yeah, we get that from these two. There's an attraction, and there's a heat between them." As he start, you know, it's like, "Whoa, whoa, here we go." He well, basically it, it, all confirmed it. It's going to happen. And and it, and it was so amazing because there was like subtle moments where you you know, of course, they're giving each other hungry eyes and stuff like that, you know, and and but the one moment that in particular that I found it. It was a camera thing is that when they're walking out of to see that he's holding the fire and she's kind of like on the cooler side of the, you know, of the frame and um, and, it you know, kind of contrasting the fire and ice because she's normally fire. He's normally the ice uh, that we associate with it. And I just the way they were walking exactly together like a pair, it was almost regal almost um, just you know, kind of my 
looking from that. Uh, but let's get back to inside the cave because something very important happened there. Yeah, Corey Smith, uh, I hope your connection's better. I'm going to go to you on this one. You and I talked about the cave paintings a little bit, and there was some joking going on about the crayons that, that John and Davos obviously threw away before Danny got down there. But what did you think about the connections back to season one and even two and then even six where, they, where the White Walkers did the swirl patterns with the dead bodies and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I I like the throwback. I like the the I like the cave paintings up until the point when they showed the actual White Walkers. <laughs> you know, like up until then, it looked like cave paintings, like something that we would see in a cave painting. You know, here on our planet, you know, it they looked rudimentary, they looked childlike, they looked you know basic. But then you get to those white walkers up on the ceiling and those things look like Michelangelo came in there and was like, <laughs> you know, painting up the Sistine Chapel or something. It was just it was too big of a jump in quality for me. Um and I you know, I wouldn't put it beyond Davos to be like, "Oh, hey, let's draw this in there and then we can say, "Oh yeah, they used to work together." Don't you see that's what we're supposed to do? Oh my so, god, those th- were clearly carved into the rock. Clearly yeah. carved. Yeah, it was just it, it was too big of a jump. I, I mean, I I liked the overall what they were trying to do. You know, to say, look, in the past they worked together and they were able to defeat the White Walkers. I get where they were going for, and it was kind of a bonding moment between John and Danny. I get it. I, I mean, I like that aspect of it, but it's just like it was just kind of clumsy in execution. You know what I mean? Well, I, I to jump in here, John, the reason it is so funny to say that like John painted that himself <laughs> is that he kept grabbing her arm to like pull the light. Like he's telling her the story as he wants her to read it. Yeah. Like it was incredibly it was but here's the thing, that's not even the first time this season like they're really rushing stuff along, right? Yeah. They really had to be like, Okay, make sure that Danny reads all these cave paintings in 58 seconds because we got to cut this episode short by eight minutes because these dragons cost a shitload of money. So <laughs> make well, sure you guide her along. But you remember we made fun of, like, Davos when he was like, you know, she has three dragons. Hey, didn't you say the fire kills White Walkers? You know, that might be something. It's like, oh, shut up. We don't need you to do this. <laughs> like this well, scene, at least this scene had like a point in revealing it to Danny. But anyway, go ahead. Well, no, I just wanted to note that I I felt that it was poignant the fact that John he almost sounded so you know so happy to be able to share this. Like, look, look, here's my proof. Look at these cave paintings. There, you know, and it was the, like the first time like he kind of had a smile on his face and everything. Like, this is going to be the proof that I need. Um, and so he I used his, felt, he used his extra smoky voice too. He was like, "No, over here." Oh yeah, and then he had like the little grin on his face, which he doesn't use often. You know, and like I said, he was putting all the charms out there, the John, all the John Snow's charm that he could um, out there. But um, I, I felt like that was definitely a moment for John that he felt like, yeah, this is the this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna get her to side with me. Well, and then it, she it, and, and then she pops out the bend the knee. Well, it, it was also it was also important because John broke. The touch barrier. That's the first time I was going to say – thank you, Corey Smith. That's the first time. It's a milestone. 
and any everybody knows when you're trying to you know make your move it's that first time that you break the touch barrier and so i that was what kind of struck me the most in that scene was yeah we had the the crazy ass hd quality paintings but you know when john grabs her wrist or her arm or whatever that was the first time he had actually ever touched her and that's always that's always a important step when you're trying to move you know some sort of relationship forward that so was john that snow's was, that was that was his version of the lean back stretch mode in the movie theater with your girlfriend exactly exactly yeah john took her into a cave and that was that it's like that's that's his move he learned it in the north and now he's he's doing it in the south too if you know what I mean. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, but, I guess yeah. something something else that I noticed, and um, and someone pointed this out to me that um, Danny actually said something that Ma- uh, Mance Raider said to John, um, and it was about that uh, you know about their survival being more important than your pride, and um, and John said the same thing to Mance, and now Danny has said the same thing to John. So I felt like that was a, a really neat, you know, kind of callback to that whole, you know, to Mance. Like, hey, you know, you said this to him when you were telling him about, you know, um, you know, about bringing the people over to the wall and, and things like that. And um, and here Danny's giving him the same line. Well, yeah. And, and well, I was just going to say, I think that that I think John in that moment, he realizes, OK, I can trust Danny. I, she'll come and fight for us. I think at this point he's just being pragmatic and that his lords won't follow him if he if he does bend the knee. And I, I think, don't think, I think it, he's starting to – I think – and bending the knee is a great way to segue into this conversation. I think John's starting to bend a little bit like towards her way of thinking, like right. the yes. way she's talking. And we'll talk about this later when, when, he, when Davos and John are grilling Masande on the seawall about Danny. There's a lot of questions in there that sound like they're interviewing to find out what kind of person she is. And I wanted to ask Sarah, who just joined the podcast. Welcome, Sarah. Um, thanks for joining us all the way from England. Um, what you have, you had some funny thoughts about the cave paintings, but what did you think about as they're exiting the cave? Uh, I thought this was hilarious. Danny's just super pissed and she's like, and, and Davos gives the whole, you know, we'll go ahead and step out. You guys talk. And she's like, no, you stay. And that look from John, the whole skulking and hanging of the head. I was like, come on, John. You're not in trouble, bro. Just stay there. You're a king. It reminded me of a time I was stuck on a plane between a couple who were arguing. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I, I was like, I was like, do you want me to move? And she was like, no, I'm going to tell you about how terrible he is in bed. It was, it was just like that. Eight hours of... Oh. Uh, of two people fighting, it was. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I've just woken up. Um, <laughs> I mean, you you might want to go to somebody else. Because <laughs> I, I've literally I, I woke up. I woke up and it was like. I'm not even cutting that out of the podcast because that was classic. That was perfect. Well, anyway, I, I woke up. I woke up. It was two forty a.m. and I was like. Isn't there something I'm supposed to be doing? <laughs> and then I was I like, just... oh, fuck the podcast. And I woke my boyfriend up, and I was like, the fucking podcast. And he was just like, I don't know. That's what everybody <laughs> like, says about this podcast, that fucking it's podcast. Like, it's, I just yeah. thought that it, it was like a Billy Madison type moment. <laughs> what, what, what day is it? Uh, <laughs> October? <laughs> 
like something that's supposed to happen today. No, so it's Nudie Magazine Day. day. <laughs> Nudie Magazine Day. Nudie Magazine Day. Yeah. Oh, it's the podcast. Oh, shit. Like, yeah, right, I, had, I had a proper Peter Baelish moment because I rushed downstairs and was like, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get things back on track. You know what they say. It's yeah. fine. It's fine because the thing is, as chaotic as this podcast oh, is, God. chaos oh, God. is a ladder. Oh, God, you did it. <laughs> you did it. Okay, so let's get back out to the beach real quick. You know what? Isis, that's your little cinnamon bun, and I know you had to feel bad for him because he was skulking. <laughs> skulking. He was. Yeah, he, he was. He was skulking. And, but, I mean, it, it, that's his play. I mean, unfortunately, that's his, that's his thing. Um, you know, I, I just – I don't know what to say about it. I mean, he was just skulking out there, and then, you know, Danny asks him, asks him um, his opinion and everything, and he gives it to her, and, and she, I mean, we, we find out that she's not going to even take his opinion. You oh, know, I disagree. He's just like, Let me interject. Oh, oh well. She, she didn't burn King's Landing. There you go. Thank you. She did not burn a city. Or she did not, thank you. She did not burn a city, and she did not melt a castle. She melted okay, a bunch of well, guys and horses and wagons. Okay, he she didn't take his word literally, um, but he did. She did. She did lay waste to a lot of people and a lot of things. Um, but anyway, like Ward I said, I think ugly. that. It, well, yes. Um, you know, I I thought it was it was a moment that John. It was really funny because I felt bad for Tyrion because he really was like, "Wait a minute, that's my job." Like he was like, "I'm the person she's supposed to go to for opinions and stuff like that." And I really felt bad for Tyrion because I've always been a big fan of his. But I feel like in the past couple of episodes, especially the well, the last three episodes, he is like losing influence. I think over Danny, he is losing. You know, every time she has a loss, she suffers a loss. Tyrion is losing more and more clout. And if you um, had a chance and, to watch the behind the scenes, uh, the making of this, the loot, the loot train battle is what they're calling it. I call it the Field of Fire 2.0. If you watch this, you watch the making of this. Uh, Amelia Clark talks about she's lost battle after battle, and each loss, more of the Targaryen comes out. And I know Sarah, that makes you happy because you're saying you've had this theory that she's, she's going to become the Mad Queen, right? Oh, I've I've had a theory that. She will agree to fight the White Walkers with John, and in return, he'll be so happy about that he will bend the knee. But I think when she finds out about his parentage, because I don't see the point in them holding off and revealing his parentage for so long unless it has some kind of capitalist effect on his relationship with Daenerys. I think when she finds out about his parentage, combined with more than likely being in the North to help him fight the White Walkers, because I don't think the Northerners are going to like her very much. I see that becoming a problem for Daenerys, and I see her maybe becoming a little bit paranoid, and I see her advisors telling her, don't abandon him, stick with him, and I feel like she may start to suspect them of trying to put him on the throne, particularly people like Varys, because they've already had the setup conversations for that. So I, I think it's entirely possible that she could go the other way. Well, Sarah, I will even add another wrinkle to that. How about if it's Tyrion, the one who's working to to go ahead and put John on the throne, uh, just like Tywin? Yeah, I've always through. thought that. Yeah. There, there are so many parallels to Aerys Tywin Rhaegar in the, in the books. I mean, Rhaegar was meant to be this melancholy 
but much beloved prince who didn't like to fight, but did so because he felt like he should, like it was his duty. And Eros was crazy jealous of him, didn't trust him at all, and suspected Tywin of trying to to put him on the throne. So you could find a direct parallel between Daenerys, Tyrion, and Jon there, particularly since Tyrion already has a positive relationship with Jon. He's the one who encouraged Daenerys to summon him to Dragonstone in the first place. So absolutely, I I think it's possible. And the really clever thing about the way they've written Daenerys is that you can look at her and see either a potential hero or a potential villain. So I do think her character is poised to go either way because she has a very cruel streak and she has a very altruistic, kind streak. So it's it's which one she verges towards, I think, when she finds out that John is... I think we can all assume now he's a Targaryen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like and a, a full Targaryen, not a bastard Targaryen. No, yeah, right. And there's theories, and we've heard the theories and, and, and all that stuff that... That that in King's Land, I mean, in, in, in the Citadel, that Sam's going to find proof that uh, Rhaegar's first marriage was annulled, and he was officially married to Lyanna Mormont. I'm uh, not Mormont. <laughs> uh, Stark. Stark. No, let's hope not. Let's hope not. No, God, no. Uh, so just to just to play the oh. other side of that coin, one thing because there are so many similarities between the story that wasn't really in the show that I only know a little bit about, and the one <laughs> happening here. Because I have read uh, enough about it to kind of have a grasp of it. One thing we are also seeing with these the second generation of people, these uh, the younger Starks, the younger Targaryens, the younger Lannisters, are a lot more humanity, especially from the Lannisters and and uh, in terms of like Jaime and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not in terms of their bastard children like Joffrey, but from Jaime, Tyrion, uh, from Jon, we're seeing. And Sansa, and you know, we're seeing more of a. I don't want to make the same mistake that my parents made, right? Uh, you know, in terms of like Ned and everything, and Cat, and then from, of course, Arian Brand is it's a whole different ball of crazy. But um, <laughs> I think that that there is obviously it, it sets up really well for Danny to become kind of a villain by the end of it. But there's also the chance for her to prove that she's not her father in a big way uh, as the show goes on and to that's how she will win over guys like Jon Snow and stuff by showing oh she's not going to light people on fire for funsies she's actually got the potential to be a good leader so I, I think that there's two directions I guess saying that she could go and I I'm actually leaning toward her not being crazy and I think that Tyrion much like Tywin if you remember uh, back whenever Rob was doing the, the his whole uprising first King of the North 1.0 type thing, yeah, um, he beat Tywin like a lot. He outsmarted Tywin a lot. He won like five and battles and he was undefeated until he got to yeah. Uh, and Tywin whatever. found a different what Tywin had military experience and he still couldn't make it happen in, with these newfangled kids. These millennials there in Westeros <laughs> they don't fight normal ways. Uh, Tyrion's I think Tyrion has been trying to think like his father and Cersei is better at that because she's way more like Tywin. Yeah. So I think when Tyrion starts to think like Tyrion, what would I do? We've seen that he is a capable leader of men. We've seen that he does understand somewhat str- strategy. So I think 
we're going to see him just like with Tywin making his big play with the Red Wedding. We're going to see Tyrion make not a Red Wedding type move, where it's, which is terrible, but he's going to make a move or have an idea that's going to be huge and really save him in the eyes of everybody over there. So and I hope that's so. Tyrion, Tyrion I, I'm, I, I love Tyrion. I think the problem Tyrion has had is that he he has always assumed he was the most intelligent of Tywin's three children. And I think Cersei and Jaime know him well enough to anticipate what he was going to do. And I, I think that's that's something he, he's learned from now or is learning from that maybe he shouldn't have underestimated his brother and sister. Absolutely. I agree with you 100% because everything that's happened in this battle, in this season, in this war, is Cersei counterpoint, counterplanning to everything Tyrion's done, and he's just yeah. been stumped. And the only reason that Danny was able to pull out this victory, let's just all say it, it was because of Drogon. Um, and we'll get to that when we get to the, to the well, end of the podcast. Well, I will say this. I think that if Drogon had been there or not, the Dothraki were going to win that battle. So it was, They were definitely overwhelming them, and, and this is funny that we're talking about this now. My wife and I were kind of debating this as I watched the episode before the podcast, and – yeah, the, the Dothraki, if you watch, as they charge, they shook the shit out of the Lannister forces. They were all literally shaking in their boots and their helmets. Um, but you know, they're also knights. They're also armored men. Um, and we know that the Dothraki don't wear armor. And eventually, if it had been a pitched battle, it could have gone either way. I think Drogon was no, the deciding no factor. No, way. No, the, the Dothraki outnumbered them 5-1. to one. It wasn't even. You do bring up a good point. That was the tail, which which Randall Tarley did say the tail won't be able to catch up to the head of the line. So maybe you're right. I will give you that. But that's something for the later on in the podcast. Let's move on. Let's get this moving a little <laughs> bit. Um, let's talk about um, Liam Cunningham as Davos Seaworth has just killed it this season, and he hasn't been in a whole lot of <laughs> scenes. But once again, as he's walking down the seawall with John later on at Dragonstone. He absolutely nails it with the Stannis grammar, uh, grammar correct, the grammatical Nazi that he is. He he did the whole Stannis fewer line. Uh, Corey Smith, you really appreciated that. Let's talk to that really quick. Yeah, it was a nice throwback to to Stannis. I mean, we hadn't had anybody on the show since uh, what season five when Stannis died, mm-hmm. um, and you kind of figured John would have uh, you know better grammar. He was raised highborn. Um, you know, and he should have all those advantages. And then it was also funny when you consider that, you know, Davos couldn't even read just a couple years ago or however long the timeline is. Um, you know, he couldn't even read, and now he's correcting people's grammar. So I thought that was a nice little uh, throwback to to Stannis, who was always the the grammar king of Westeros. Also, we uh, we get Davos being and I. I don't want to call him a, a dirty old man because I don't get that from him. He's too fatherly to be a dirty old man, but he really is crushing on the Sunday like hard. And he did this episode by going, "Oh, and look, here's Masonday of nah." Like he really drew that out a lot, and I was really, I kind of felt like I needed to take a shower after that. Like it was really bad. Like, but <laughs> Sarah, you and I talked about this a little bit in work chat. Um, it it was kind of funny. And kind of dirty at the same time. Is Davos crushing on Masande? Yes. Do you blame him? No, I don't. She's beautiful. She's a she's a babe. I I think I was watching it earlier with my boyfriend, and 
And he was like, Davos is being really lads on tour. Like, he's really seeing this as an opportunity to let loose. And I said, yeah, because he's got a girl in every port, but unfortunately most of those girls are adoptive daughters. <laughs> he sort of goes around picking up these stray children to father. He never gets any action, though, from the, the legal age ladies. So I think he was trying to spot an opportunity. Unfortunately, he's not her type. No. He's... Well, he's got balls, so. <laughs> oh, low blow. Well, he low didn't really, he really low blow. Hey, he didn't feel anything. Don't worry about it. So it's, uh... Yeah. The Sunday's I... like, I don't even need birth control with my current partner. We're good. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and just to, to back up Davos here, uh, not to be too crude, but if I was to be the kind of guy to be like, I'm going to rank the hottest women in Game of Thrones, she's number one with a bullet. She is the most beautiful girl on that show. I've loved her since the first time I saw her in some janky cheerleader movie called Fired Up, which she was in. And, <laughs> was uh, she in Fired Up? She was you in Fired Up. Stop describing that movie. But anyways. Fired Up is, is problematic, but also funny. It's weird. And then she was great in Misfits as well. But she she, loves Misfits, yes. Yeah, she's outstanding. She is one of the best untapped talents in Hollywood. And I think this – she's going to be one of the ones, I think, that is going to have a massive springboard off of her performance in Game of Thrones because she is outstanding. She's a great actress, and she is absolutely stunning. So she's got – a lot going for her coming out of the show, and I don't blame Davos. So, no. And in terms of men in Game of Thrones and the way they act towards women, I, I don't think we even need to put Davos in the creepy man category because you've got <laughs> Littlefinger, you've got Littlefinger in Westeros, who is the ultimate creeper. Davos is just being yeah. nice. If I was yeah. Missandei, I would not feel remotely threatened or disturbed as far, by his as behavior. As, chivalry, as far as chivalry goes, that's as much as you're going to get from a pirate. But also, <laughs> to to back up your point, they're not related, so already yeah. not He's already in the win column. Half. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we have John and Davos just quizzing Missandei about uh, Daenerys, and then we get the lone Greyjoy ship returning from that sad little sea battle, and it's just limping into harbor. And this is where Kit Harrington had his moment of great acting, and he didn't even say I – mean, he said like a one line, but he just stared at Theon as he comes up the beach. And a lot of us were looking forward to this scene, especially writing for Winter is Coming. We knew, this was, we knew that this scene was going to happen, and Isis – You've got some thoughts on it. Again, this is your cinnamon bun, and he's shining. Talk about it. Yeah. Okay, so I, I found I found this moment. I knew this was coming uh, already, and um, and I had my worries about John and Theon meeting, and I felt like, okay, I don't think John's going to hurt him or kill him. But at the same time, Theon doesn't know that, and Theon's first, like, inclination when he sees john like he knows in his eyes like john wants to kill me mm -hmm. but i need to ask about sansa and he walked and, up to john too he could have stayed back by he, the men and he could have he could have he could have just cowered he could have done all kinds of things given excuses to defend himself whatever but no the first thing he does is he asks about sansa uh which is the right play <laughs> to do and and <laughs> here's a person that everybody pretty much pretty much wants him dead 
Um, they wanted him dead forever. The only person who wanted him alive was his sister. And at this point, he thinks his sister absolutely hates him because he jumped um, off the boat. So I, I feel like this is going to be part of his redemption arc of, you know, him becoming a little bit stronger, him kind of getting his own his own self back again. Uh, but it, he had to go ahead and confront this head on, and he did. He didn't jump back in the boat and say, row, guys, row, row back to the boat or anything like that. Um, so I thought it was a really good moment for him, even if he only said one line, um, th- that he addressed it. And, and, you know, John, of course, he said he was like, you know, this is the only reason why I'm not killing you. I still would have punched him in the stomach. Uh, but, I, I mean... <laughs> Uh, he still would have gotten it. At least he'd have gotten some business. A punch in the face, something. You gotta, you gotta come away a with smack a smack in the scar. face. Yeah, yeah. You, you gotta come away with a scar at least. Um, but I felt like it was a really good moment for Theon uh, that the fact that he's like, okay, I've confronted this issue. Now I can kind of move on. I but. appreciated the fact that he was there to ask Daenerys for help to get his sister back. It wasn't. I've come to report that we lost. You know, I'm going to go back to the, to the Iron Islands. No. He was there to say, I need help, and I want my sister back, and I appreciated that, and I was kind of surprised that he hadn't been thrown overboard by his men, uh, so uh, it, was, it was pretty – that was a nice scene, but I, – I was actually um, shocked that he didn't meet Gendry out there. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> Gendry's out there somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> I mean, I was like, hey, is he – I mean, you know, did did they just pick him up along the way? I mean, how how is this going to happen here? So I was a little disappointed we didn't get any – No, uh, the watch still continues. Gendry watch 2018 still can, still continues. Uh, let's move on to the North. Sarah, you joined the podcast at the right time. Um, <laughs> but uh, – we we had some great moments in the north, and it starts with uh, Creepy Finger revealing the <laughs> fact that he had the the Valyrian steel dagger, Cat's Paw. And if you guys notice, Corey Smith, I'll go to you first because I know Sarah's got a lot to talk about on this one. But Corey Smith, let me go to you first. Um, in the previously on, it showed uh, Littlefinger saying. Uh, this dagger belonged to Tyrion, and he's presenting the dagger to, to Bran. We all know that Bran knows what's going on, but he says – Bran asks him, do you know who this belonged to? Littlefinger absolutely says no, and that's the question that started the War of the Five Kings. Yeah, and and I think you know Littlefinger was walking into – for once, Littlefinger was walking into a conversation – without knowing the full kind of lay of the land. Um, you know, Bran had revealed his kind of three-eyed raven status to Sansa, but it's not really widely known at that point. And so, you know, yeah, he lies to Bran. He straight up lies to Bran. And then, which I think makes when Bran kind of quotes the chaos is a ladder, uh, when he throws Littlefinger's quote right back at him. Which was amazing. Right, you see that moment in Littlefinger's brain where he says, "Oh shit!" Like, what? How the hell does that kid know that? You know, maybe he doesn't realize necessarily that Bran's the Three-Eyed Raven yet, but he, at the very least, he he realizes Bran. There's knows something this. else going on with with this kid right. than just being a cripple in a wheelchair. Exactly. Maybe he has spies or whatever. Little in Littlefinger's brain, he can figure out, but. He, he knows something. So I think after that, he realized 
he screwed up and when he lied to him about the dagger and that things are about to get very complicated for Littlefinger very fast. So I love that scene. It was great um, seeing Cat's Paw. You know, before the season started and we saw that, you know, we saw Cat's Paw on uh, the cover of EW. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we concocted all these wonderfully complex uh, theories of how Arya ends up with the dagger, and it just turns out that Littlefinger gives it to Bran, and then Bran gives it to Arya. The simplest answer. Like, right, the simplest answer in the world. So, but I like that. The the scene, you know, right after that when Mira showed up was, was kind of painful. Um, I don't know how much you want to get into that right yeah, now. But, oh, absolutely. This time to start it, well, and it's, it's going to be a conversation, but it gutted me because yeah, there's two things well, going on wanted, here. There's I just two, wanted to ask. Okay, I just want ahead. to add something real quick. You know, Littlefinger didn't completely lie. He said that the you know um, it was the uh, war that of the five of the five kings, right? Yeah. Isn't that what he said? It's that's the question that's that started not, the war. Yeah, it's the question that started the war. Um, so he didn't really lie. All I mean, that dagger really, you know, kind of was the catalyst well, that, before that, that started before, it. Before that, he said he didn't know who it belonged to, though. Right. No, no, that's no. where he lied. And, and but and of course yes that's a lie but not all of it was a lie he and and let's be honest uh, Littlefinger lives on half truths that's true you know Very true and so I felt like you know he was like telling parts of the truth and then part not so the truth and and I just wanted to say that you know being that that was the dagger that really kind of uh, was the catalyst for Cat to leave. Winterfell and, you know, to investigate because supposedly um, they were, you know, not Tyrion, but um, Littlefinger tells that tells him that, oh, yeah, that was mine. But, you know, Tyrion had it and blah, blah, blah. And then that goes for Cat, too. I mean, like I said, it's really, really kind of the catalyst of of but trying to kill Bran. And Bran knows everything now. Absolutely. And Sarah, now let's let's get into the mirror scene. Sorry. it It gutted me emotionally because there's a couple things that happens here. First of all. Mira is heartbroken, and, and we get to finally find out that she has more feelings for Bran here than, than she has let on previously or that we've seen on camera. Number two, she brings up three, she brings up three names that just absolutely ripped my heart out. Jojen, she says, my brother died for you. Summer and Hodor died for you. And like I had tears welling up in my eyes as she's saying this. And Bran is just staring at her, and you and I talked about this at length earlier today. But, mm-hmm. but let's let's talk about it. Let me hear your your, your thoughts on Bran the Three Eyed Raven versus Bran retreating into himself and taking on some kind of emotional armor so he doesn't have to deal with this. Yeah. Just before I do that, I do just want to point out regarding Littlefinger, we know that was his dagger. We know Tyrion never owned it, and he immediately comes into Bran and says, "Oh, whatever you want, Bran, and I'll help you." <laughs> and then Bran's like. Who won the dagger? And Littlefinger immediately nopes out on him. No, no idea. Yeah. So that just shows you how invested he is in actually helping. And he did it. He did it just like that with, diff- with different accents. He did it just like that, by the way. Basically, yeah. Um, but regarding Bran and Mira, I think that what he did maybe one of the kindest things he could have done for her because she comes in and says, "I don't want to leave you," and it almost seemed to me like she was looking for a reason to stay. And Bran has had a 
very Harry Potter-esque arc in that people keep dying for him. <laughs> uh, Jojen died for him. Summer and Hodor obviously died for him. They're all throwing themselves in harm's way to protect this chosen one, as it were. And Mira has been through so much. She's done so much. She's tired. She wants to go home to her family. But I think if he'd given her a reason to stay with him, if he'd let her think that he still needed her, she may have stayed. And I think maybe it was kinder to just send her home, even if he hurt her desperately. At least she's gone. At least she'll be with her family. So, I mean, my opinion on Bran is that he's not totally lost. And I'm not going to believe he's totally lost until we get to the last episode of season eight and I see no proof of it. But Bran, and this, okay, I I hate to name drop, but this also has slightly got something to do with the fact that I have met Isaac Hempstead, right? Uh, It's true, you did, before the season. Yeah, and I have asked him how Bran deals with grief this season. And he tried to tell me something and then he was like oh I can't because I'm going to give it away but I think yeah Bran has a lot of information in his head at the moment I think he's still adjusting to being the three-eyed raven but as I said last week he Summer and Hodor died because he he let go of that mission because he was so focused on finding his family so I think it might be easier for him to hide behind the three-eyed raven because it means he doesn't have to deal with his grief. It means he doesn't have to feel deal with feelings of guilt over all of the people who have died for him. And I, I don't think he's acting in such a way as makes me feel he is totally lost because he's clearly been paying attention to both of his sisters. And after Mira left, I, th- I think he looked pretty sad. I think Isaac is playing it really, really well. I think there are subtle hints of sadness or emotion there. But he's not playing it on the surface all the time. So I think Bran is there. I think mostly he's being the three-eyed raven, but I think also partially he's using that as a crutch because he doesn't want to deal with the sheer amount of pain and loss that he's suffered since he left Winterfell. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, now that I hear you say it out loud, I, I kind of, I kind of see where you're coming from, Corey Fellow. And you and I talked about this a little bit, and I, and I likened uh, Brand to a an old computer from the 1990s trying to run Windows ME and download iTunes. Now, like it's, he's just like over, he's he's overloaded right now. Not a lot of memory left, and he's just jam packed with all these files. And I mean, like he knows, like he pulled, he pulled out of his brain, chaos is a ladder. And when that was said between Littlefinger and Varys, it was the only two – they were the only two people in the Iron Throne room in King's Landing thousands of miles away from Bran who was headed towards the Wall or something. I, I, don't, know, I don't know exactly the timeline when, where Bran was when that was happening. He was nowhere near that. Nowhere – nobody in his family. I mean the only person – the only thing that I can say is there might have been a bird up in the roof that saw this conversation happen, and that's why he knows what happened. I don't understand a three-eyed raven anymore. I thought I did, but I have no clue how it works. But um, you know, you and I were talking about this. I, I kind of think now that I've heard Sarah's counterpoint to this, I kind of like that idea. But I also think that it's easier for him to flip off the humanity switch and go straight into I've got to save the world basically because I know it's coming. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, I think that we don't really – it's like you said, we don't really know what's happening with Bran yet. I think that there's a definite chance that he's seen so much in such a short amount of time that everything is noise to him. And 
uh, chaos is a ladder just shot out of his mouth because he had heard it while he was searching and, and it didn't it might not even register for him now granted I don't think that he said that without knowing that Littlefinger said it <laughs> like <laughs> but that would be that would be weird if that was the case out of uh, everything about Bran is weird but he he's there's a chance that he's seen so much that he's just bogged down he, he can't make heads or tails of it yet and He's as he keeps, you know, linking into the matrix with the tree. He's going to clear it up a little more every time, and kind of start getting his bearings because that's a big part of of his role to play in this is to a spy uh, north of the wall, find out where the Night King is, and also to try to find ways either in the past or see the future of things they can do to prepare. Like for example. Brand giving Arya that dagger was that him uh, just giving her the dagger because he had no use for it, or did he know that she's going to need something that can kill a White Walker? In I the feel future? like that's the reason because when he gave it to her, he pointed to the da- with the dagger to Arya, and when he let go of it, he drew his hands back in a way that it, almost to me it felt like he was seeing something like maybe the history of the dagger and what Ari could use with it. I don't know. It's just, just a lot. Like you said, there's a lot going on with Bran. But he's, he's they're really also, but, but the other side of that could be the Bran has seen everything. He, I, I don't necessarily believe all this either, but let's just say that, you know, River Jojen, right? Yeah. Jojen, when they got captured at Craster's Keep, knew he wasn't going to die. He just knew it. He knew when he was going to die. He knew when he was going to die. He knew exactly. He he didn't maybe know when or exactly where, but he knew it wasn't there. Similar to Hodor, right? Like, that's why Hodor was scared of every dark place he ever Mm -hmm. had to go into. And um, he didn't know when, didn't know where, but he had seen it, right? Mm -hmm. So Bran knows when he's going to die. He knows what he's seen. He's experienced his death. He experiences it every day. And he experiences the death of everyone in the entire history of the world. God damn. Past, future, present, all the time. So why would he... I mean, honestly, even though he is Bran Stark originally, he's not anymore. Why would he care that Littlefinger betrayed Ned Stark? Those things don't matter in his brain. Exactly. And, and, And so him saying that could just be... Nothing could just be white noise. Could just be him echoing back something that he knows Littlefinger has said before. Now that now I don't agree with that necessarily either because I think, uh, and and I I don't know if I said it to you or someone else, but there's a, a great quote from uh, the movie Three Ten to Yuma where Russell Crowe, who is a bad guy and who has no connection with anyone in the world, uh, tells somebody even bad men love their mama. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think Bran. Still, ha- he's still a kid. <laughs> I think that he's still got deep down inside of that robot brain <laughs> a love for his parents. And he, when he figures out or refigures out or finally sees or whatever that Littlefinger was involved in that, that's going to be the downfall of Littlefinger because he's going to want to tell Arya and Sansa and John. Right. Agreed. Completely. Okay. Yeah. Yay, I- friendship. <laughs> <laughs> but before we jump too far ahead, let's get back to. Um, and, and I wanted to also say uh, uh, much appreciation to uh, Ellie Kendrick, who played Mira Reed. And I don't know if we've seen the last of her. Hopefully we haven't. But um, she, for a badass warrior chick like Mira has been, dragging a, uh, a, a fully grown young man through the north by herself uh, and 
being one of only three people on the show to kill a White Walker, not a white, an actual White Walker, and having suffered all the loss that she suffered, she turned into a little girl with a broken heart at, at a drop of a hat when Bran did not reciprocate. The, the, he, there was no emotional attachment to her, her saying goodbye. And I just thought, man, what a great actress this 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 Ellie Ellie is she's so awesome, and there's been a lot of great scenes through Game of Thrones and especially this season, and I will not forget that she'll go out on top in my opinion if she doesn't come back. So, but let's get to I, well, I just wanted to say that she was she was Brand's ride or die chick, and and for a long part of that she was also his ride, like literally. <laughs> That's true, literally. She was riding him down the freaking road. And so I, I really appreciated uh, the acting. I don't think this is the last time we will see her. I, I don't. I, I have a feeling that she we will see her again. She better bring her dad not. Howland back next time she shows up as well, I'm saying. I, I'm tired of I not hope she comes Howland. back. Yeah, me too. I hope she comes back. She's amazing. And the, the scene in season four where she has to mercy kill her own brother. Oh, God, I that was awful. I can't, as a big sister... With two younger brothers, I can't watch that. That breaks me up, and yeah. it's never talked about in terms of Game of Thrones scenes that fucked you up emotionally because there are so many. But that is like top of the list for me, Absolutely. and she did that beautifully. And she's a wonderful actress. I don't know if you've ever seen her play Anne Frank, but yes. she is a tremendous talent, and I hope that she does a lot of work from here on in. I agree. Um, now let's get uh, for another person I want to appreciate, uh, Ramin Djawadi the guy who does the composer for Game of Thrones, just absolutely killed it this episode with all the themes that he had to uh, interweave together, especially with characters coming into contact with each other for the first time. But we got a sense of his just pure musical genius when Arya comes up to the top of the hill and it crests over to see Winterfell, and you get the Stark theme just playing on the strings. And man... I know I've said this before in this podcast on tonight's episode, but I started tearing up right there because that stark theme in itself is haunting. And when it started playing as she's staring at Winterfell, man, I nearly lost it. But Arya comes up to the gates of Winterfell, and you have this great scene where she's talking to the guards. And Sarah, this is your girl. I'll let you take it from here, but... Macy Williams was amazing in this episode, once again, and this guard scene was hilarious. Her dodging out of the way of the big guard and then just disappearing as they turned their back was awesome. I am. Um, I watched this in work. Uh, I, I'm going to admit I watched it before it aired, and I was crying so hard I had to pretend a family friend had died. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, so she, she rides up, and I'm sitting there going, <gasps> And my, my colleague, my colleague turns to me. He's like, "What's wrong?" I was like, "Oh, just a friend of the family has just passed away. I'm sorry." <laughs> I just sat there weeping. Oh openly. my god! Uh, and every time I've watched it since, I watched it earlier, and I, I was just crying again because Arya is. She's always been my favorite since I first read the books, and it's not because she's badass or she's good with a sword. There's so much depth to her that I really relate to and and adore. And, oh my God, watching her come home just, just messed me up. But I love how that scene with the guards harked back to season one when she 
sort of got lost in the dungeons of the Red Keep and ended up outside of the castle and came back and they wouldn't believe that she was Arya Stark because she was so filthy and right. she threatened them. And I I thought, because I, I heard something about that scene before she, she turned up and I was wondering, is she going to threaten them again? But she didn't. And that's what I found so nice about it because this season, after two seasons in Essos being told to strip away her identity and basically just being trained to become this killing machine. What you've seen this season is her really connecting to her softness and connecting to the things that make her human, like Hot Pie, uh, Nymeria, her family. And later on when she's sparring with Brienne, I have a lot to say about that. But, you know, she probably could have cut those two down. And I think the old Arya may have given it a try, but she was calm she was composed she sort of outsmarted them in a sense you know reminded them well if you don't let me in and i am Arya stark you're fucked i love that she said i'm getting in here anyway i'm getting in this castle anyway (laughs) (laughs) you're not stopping me please don't think that you're a hindrance um because i mean i probably could have snuck past those guards they weren't exactly the most intelligent i don't really know why they were posted at the door the big dude who is telling the skinny guy after Arya's sitting down he's like if you don't do it, I'll punch you as hard as I can in your fucking face. <laughs> that was so great. I've, I've watched that, rewound it, and laughed my ass off. It was perfect. I love that he tried to grab her, and she was just like, "Oh yeah, dude, no. What yeah. are you doing? Perfect. Perfect uh, scenes. It, w- it was a perfect scene. Every scene she was in this week was perfect, and I, I wept through all of them. Yeah, they were, they were great. And it's just because I guess the Starks have gone through so much in this show. And for me, I've always been a big Stark supporter. Like I've always, ever since I've read the books, I'm like, I'm Team Stark. I'm I'm in the North. If I was on Game of Thrones, I'd be a Northman. All that good stuff. But I've always been had a, a partial soft spot in my heart for uh, the Starks. And Corey Smith, we haven't heard from you for a little bit. Um, I saw something on Twitter during the show, and then I went back and tried to find it, and I think I found it maybe on the Free Folk Reddit. They were putting great tweets up. And it was some guy was like, I love how the Starks, every time something happens, no matter what happens, the first thing they do when they get home is they go down to the crypts and pay homage to the lo- their loved ones. And that's what happens next is Arya's down in the crypts, and she's looking at the the, the statue of Ned, which... I love that she also says it doesn't look like him because it doesn't. The face is not Sean Bean, but it's Sean Bean-esque. And uh, we had a great scene there. So, Corey Smith, what did you think about that, the whole crypt meetup and everything? Um, I loved it. It, it. There was definitely an air of it wasn't quite as, like, lovey-dovey hug and, you know, it, when Arya and Sansa – meet up you know they they weren't just like falling over each other but i loved Arya's quotes about you know when they said oh it doesn't look like him and sansa replies you know well everyone knows him or knew what he looked like is dead and she's like well we aren't right and and then you know just a little bit later she says you know you know when they start talking about how'd you get to winterfell and Arya's like it's a long story and and sansa's like yeah so is mine and they both kind of know they've been through a lot of shit. They've been through so much. Um, but, you know, Arya says, but our story's not over yet. Um, and then she gives and, her the second hug, which was the real hug. Right. Exactly. And that second one was where you could tell. Because the first one, you know, they 
they focus on on Maisie's face, and she kind of is pulling a brand, and you know she's just kind of stonewalling the the hug. But then that second one, she's got that smile on her face, and you know, and you touched on it a second ago that the music from uh, Ramin Dijawadi was in the background, and it's that sad, stark theme. And I mean, it was it was a great scene. I, I loved it. It wasn't again. It wasn't necessarily as overly emotional. It wasn't John as, and Sansa, right? As you might have thought it would have been, but it, it was definitely you know a little more subtle. But it wasn't any less powerful. I don't think. Isis, you wanted to chime in here. Yeah, I just wanted to note that I love the fact that Sansa admitted that um, Arya was always John's favorite and, and and the look of like little smile like that coy smile that, that impish, Arya gave the impish smile she has yeah, 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 like, yeah she goes like yeah I know I'm the favorite but it was just really really sweet and then I saw um, somewhere on Twitter or a Tumblr or somebody somebody pieced together the last time that uh, Arya and John saw each other that big hug that they gave each other and she jumps into his arms and stuff and then paralleled that with the um, Sansa and John uh, big hug that we got so it was one it was one of those things that makes you kind of want to it makes you wait for that reunion that we hope that we have this john and aria reunion and i'm i'm just hoping oh my God. That i think everybody just, in the whole world is waiting for that right now yeah and and you know you just hope that she just jumps in his arms like a little girl again and give her that you know that moment another thing i just want to note is how much sansa excuse me aria is looking like ned and john snow and in the books her, i'll tell you this in the books they always say that aria has always favored the starks she looks like uh, Ned's sister, Lyanna, and, of course, John, we know now, is the son of Lyanna, so that's why they look so close to each other. Well, I mean, it's she even does it in her walk, and I don't know if this is purposely done by the actress or, or what, but her, her walk, the way her hair is pulled back, the, the look on her face and everything, I mean – Excuse me. It just screams Stark, 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 and uh, in specific Ned and Jon Snow. So I just that was something, some details that that really st- stood out for me. Sarah, I know you have a lot to say on this, and I don't even know how you got through this scene, honestly. But uh, I did see something. Another thing I saw on Twitter was this guy was talking about uh, after after the episode, he didn't know where his girlfriend was, and he went to look for her, and he found her. In their bedroom, curled up in the corner, crying after the episode, and I was like, "That's that's probably Sarah right there." <laughs> so you know how last week the big hyped meeting was John and Daenerys. Yeah. Uh, Sansa and Arya has always been the meeting I was hyped for. Always, I was watching it, going, "Okay, I can stop watching the show now. What a great finale! <laughs> this is brilliant." Honestly, I, I, it was what well, I loved the recognition and the respect. While they were talking, when it came to that part in the conversation where they were like, you know, I've had a, I've got a long and pretty horrible story. Well, so do I. It was, there was a respect there. They were recognizing that because back in season one, if you had asked either of those girls, do you think your sister could survive through what she's about to go through? They'd probably say no, because Sansa always thought that Arya was out of control badly behaved, big mouth, got herself into trouble all the time, and Arya probably would have told you that Sansa was weak and stupid. But they've both survived. It is them two above other characters who you 
may have seen going further. And I think standing in the crypts together, looking at each other, recognizing we've both been through hell and back, but here we are. I think there was definitely, if not the super, super close sisterly relationship that I want them to have and believe they will eventually have. There was respect. There was recognition. And there was love. There was love there, too. Yeah, absolutely. No matter what they've gone through in the past. Arya was happy to be home and she was happy to see her sister and Sansa was happy to see her. And when she went in for the second hug, man, that that killed me. I figured I it did. <laughs> really? I would like so to know. I, I would like to know something about Arya in the scene. And uh, this is something that I've noticed that she did. When, when Sansa asked her about her list, when she said, um, you know, Joffrey was on my list, I, I took it this way. She was happy to be home. She was happy that Sansa was alive, and that second hug to me was where the really the real connection came. And I agree, there's yeah. respect between the two, but I still think Arya does not trust anybody, and I don't think she would trust. I don't even know that she would trust John fully if he showed up today. Like if he showed up on that episode and was like, "Hey," and they had a big hug, maybe she would. But Arya's been through too much to tr- to not. Just open up and trust Sansa, and she tested her in the crypts. She tested her about Joffrey. She said, uh, I heard you killed Joffrey, and then when Sansa just openly admitted that it wasn't her, Arya, Arya ponies up and says, yeah, you're right. I, you know, I was mad when I found out it wasn't you too, so she told her – basically she revealed that she was testing her, and then when Sansa asked her about her list in the crypts, uh, Arya used that giggle. I, and I think it's because – I think it's on purpose by Macy Williams because Arya is – is it was trained by the Faceless Men. She's a ninja assassin. She's a badass. And in the woods with the Lannister soldiers, when they when they asked her where she was go, going and she said King's Landing to kill Cersei, they all started laughing. And she went into that little girl giggle, and it disarmed them. And when Sansa seriously asked her about her list, she did the giggle again, and it disarmed Sansa. I think that's on purpose by Macy Williams, and I hope that we see more of that as the well, episode the season goes on. I do have to point out the reason Arya didn't make it in the Faceless Men is because by nature she's not duplicious. She's very upfront. You saw when she stared at Peter Baelish with such evident intent to fuck him up that she might as well have hired a skywriter to fly it past his bedroom. You're next. <laughs> I, I think... As the season goes on, if she does have any problems with Sansa, she's just going to take them to her because that's what Arya does. She is so open about her beefs with people. It's almost gotten her in trouble so many times. And the the whole point of the Faceless Men was for her to reestablish her identity. She's not going to be somebody who holds back and hides in the shadows. If she's got a problem with Sansa, if she feels she can't trust her, I think she's going to be balls up in her face. But you also have to Honestly. say she also learned to lie from the best liars in the business, and that's she learned she, the the, lie, the lying game. And she would get she would get smacked if she if they caught her in a lie. So I mean, she, she does did, know. She didn't she didn't lie to Sansa. She said Cersei's on my list of people I'm going to kill. No, I agree. And, I agree. I agree with that. She didn't lie, but she she I think I'm starting to pick up on subtle subtle hints like that. I I'm telling you, I'm zeroing in on that little giggle. That's her way of disarming people, and I think that's something that she learned as a faceless man. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I don't know. I I, I agree with you. She did not lie. There was no lying there, but she also she knows how to play people, and I think she learned that in Essos. But let's get let, we we already talked about the brand, and you know we had a nice another reunion. Brand and, and Arya hugged. 
and it wasn't as emotional, but Macy Williams did sell it by the facial expressions. And then, of course, we have the dagger being presented to Arya. And then we have the badass scene that uh, really, when I when I first read the leaked script for this, I was looking forward to the scene. Arya and Brienne dueling, and it was amazing. Like, that was just so kick-ass. And again, the music that was played after she flipped up and went into that scorpion pose, that whole dagger behind her pose, or the sword behind her, that that music that started playing, which is Arya's fight music from Bravos, was absolutely on point. Um, but, Corey Thelen, we haven't heard from you in a while. You asked me about this fight scene whenever I told you that the episode had leaked. What did you think about it? How did, how did, how did you feel about it after you'd actually seen it? Oh, after I saw it, I thought it was, uh, if we're going to rank things again, that's probably in my top ten favorite moments in the show. That was uh, incredible. We got to actually see Arya doing everything from the serio kind of dance fighting to um some of the stuff she learned the kind of quickness the head speed and stuff that she moved uh, the way she moved uh that she learned from the faceless men we also got to see brianne uh, sparring with someone who's smaller and you're like oh this is where brianne's gonna suffer because you know Arya's so quick and blah blah and brianne could have won the fight as well it was a very even spar it showed how strong they both are it was uh and then at the end the smile that was a thing that was the amazing. two of them finishing with a smile while with a knife at each other's throat <laughs> or that a sword cool. i guess whatever. that was very cool that was such an incredible like did we just become best friends type moment because <laughs> they 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 had already met and it didn't go well <laughs> and uh yeah i i really liked that scene it i don't know it just gave a lot of um i will more than anything else you know what we got to see aria fight in the daylight because we really haven't got to see that yet oh my god so everything everything we've seen her do has been in a in a room where she blows out a candle or off camera so it was nice to see her get to show off her skills and also to have little fingers sitting up there watching it going god what the hell happened to these star kids god <laughs> This because you had the, robot epi- <laughs> the episode before, upstairs. little finger goes that that that's an impressive woman. She beat the hound, and then you get this little impish little girl, pretty much hand to her ass. I mean, there were there were moments where they both got points, they both scored points. But if you were keeping total, keeping tally, Arya had the most scores. She hit she hit her in the leg a couple times, in the side, and then you know hit her like she she had the the needle pointed at her neck in the very first move. That was amazing shit. And I went back and I watched. Uh, season one with Serio Pharrell teaching Arya, and some of those moves were you could put side by side exact mirror of how she fought Brienne as how Serio fought the Lannister guards and Marion Trent when they came to get her. It was amazing. Um, Isis, you had some thoughts. Yeah, I just wanted to just say that I loved when the fighting was over. Brienne asked her, you know, who taught you how to do that, and she casually says no one and yeah. and of course you know talking about her you know journey that she had and everything but it was also a really nice callback uh to when the last time Brienne and Arya had met and Arya is the one who asked her 
who taught you how to fight? And Brienne says it was her father. So I really enjoyed oh, yeah. that, that this time, this time it was kind of role was reversed. And I really feel like, like, uh, Corey said that like they just became friends and they, they're gonna they're gonna like unite their superpower rings and they are gonna be freaking deadly warrior princesses. I, I just love it. <laughs> I'm totally here for it. Yeah, uh, Sarah, I know you've got something to add to this. I have a couple of things. Um, firstly, there was an innocence to this scene that I loved, which was Arya's absolute delight at being able to spar with someone who, first of all, was safe in a sense a friend someone she could trust as a friend of the family uh that's what she always wanted to do as a little girl and it was denied to her and she's able to do this now at home with somebody she admires with another woman in a fight scene that for a fight scene between two women on television was not remotely sexualized which i really appreciate (laughs) so i says you there was a <laughs> there was a like a childlike joy to her that I'm enjoying because as somebody who loves Arya, I don't want her to go south and kill Cersei and become this insane killing machine. I want her to be happy. And this season is further proof to me that home is where she belongs. And so I, I that really meant a lot to me. And obviously it was a, a kick ass scene, so it was just amazing to enjoy as a as a fight between two equals. But I, I loved how Maisie played that. There was such happiness. And secondly, I love how this has sufficiently distracted Peter Baelish from Bran, because Bran spooked him. Yeah. But as I said, Arya was so obviously there with the, I'm going to get you, that (laughs) I think his focus is now going to shift to her and trying to get rid of her, because she is a problem. She is an immediate problem and a threat to his safety. And as I said, she's so upfront, she can't hide it. So I think going forward, you're going to see Peter Baelish put in every effort to get rid of her, to eradicate the problem that she presents, and completely ignoring Bran, who Who's the one he more, should be worried about. Who is, I think Bran is possibly the most dangerous person in Westeros to somebody like Peter Baelish who has so many secrets. Agreed. And I think, kudos to Arya, because she's just completely distracted him now. I think she's derailed him off that path. He knows he can't manipulate her. He knows there's absolutely nothing he can say that's going to... He could tell her he saw her in Harrenhal and that he didn't give her identity away, but she'll immediately come at him with, well, you didn't help me. So I think I'm really excited now to see where this goes with with Littlefinger because I think between the three of them, they can take him down. Well, and I agree... And when uh, I have something just to add real quick, when Brian and Arya are looking up at the, you know, where Littlefinger is looking down at them, they both like gave him that look like, oh, yeah, we're definitely coming for you. Uh, And I would like to note that Sansa kind of walked away kind of real confused, like she's almost kind of trying to put it together like, holy shit, my sister has seen some shit and she has come back a changed woman Uh, and not not only to mentioned that now this makes me kind of the Rickon of the family. It reminded me of Ned in season one while he's watching Arya train and uh, he yeah. gets visibly upset. That's true. Because, I think somebody's actually compared that on one of the Reddits. Yeah. Can, yeah. You know, your kid sister goes away and she comes back and she's very clearly deadly. And she's talking about this list of people 
that she has that she's going to kill. So I think Sansa's thinking, well, shit, who has she killed? What has she done? I don't think she was angry as such. A, I thought I saw it as confusion and, and worry almost. But I, I have no worries for the two of them. I think the two sisters are going to be fine. It's it's Peter Baelish who I think is the, the big problem. Well, let's let's now leave Winterfell and let's go to the final battle that just – I mean if Game of Thrones set the bar with battles like the Blackwater in Season 2 and Watchers on the Wall in Season 4 and, of course, Hardhome in Season 5, Battle of the Bastards in Season 6, this was probably – this battle of the loot train, this had to be probably the most epic battle I've ever seen – on Game of Thrones because of the fact we finally got Drogon unleashed. Like, yeah, Drogon and Danny being full Targaryen on a dragon, unleashed, and just doing whatever the fuck they wanted to. And it was amazing to watch that happen. But before we started, before we start the battle, there were some great scenes, and we'll, we talked about it when we first started the podcast. But let's quickly graze through it real quick. Um, Corey Smith, we had some stuff with. Uh, Dickon and and Jamie, and how Braun was kind of ribbing Dickon a little a little like like they were in like a locker room like you know like hey you're such a you know you're such a wimp but you know Dickon held up Dickon did his job and he saved Jamie in the fight. Yeah, I liked. I mean, we kind of touched on it earlier that there was I think Thone brought it up that there was a lot of moments of levity. Um, throughout the the episode, um, especially when we get to the battle scene and what what goes on there, um, I like the little scene. You know, Jamie and and Bron are kind of grilling uh, Dickon on his. Uh, you know, the sacking of Highgarden was his first battle. Um, you know, and they're kind of grilling him on what he what he thought about it, and you know, they're both you know veteran soldiers who've done it a million times, and so it's nothing to them. But they're you know they're talking to him about it. And he's like, oh, it was glorious. And they're like, shut the fuck up, dude. Your dad's not here. Like, tell us what you really think. You know, like, like level with us. And, and you know, and then Dickon's like, well, you know, I knew some of those guys. I hunted with some of those guys. The Tyrells were, you know, our friends like a week ago. Yeah. So, you know, I thought it was a great, you know, again, it was just a little scene. It just brought a little bit of levity, especially right before we hit, um, you know, the the huge, you know, kind of brutal battle that was a the you know, the horrifying battle that that was about to hit. And um, you know, it was right after that that we started to hear the kind of rumbling in the distance that kind of led us into the battle. Which by the way, um but I've I've mentioned this already once, but uh the the script for this episode was leaked on like Monday or Tuesday before the episode was leaked. Uh, by Star India, and uh, I read this this specific part about uh, the sound that was being made by the Dothraki, and it says that Bronn shushes Jamie and says, "Do you hear that?" And they both hear a rolling like an ocean waves crashing against the shore or whatever. And so I I watched it on the computer, and of course, you know, with the sound cranked up as far as I could on my, on my laptop. It didn't have the same, 
I don't know, the same feeling. So as soon as Sunday night came on, I cranked up my TV and my sound and would listen to it. And man, it really was a thundering wave of just pure terror that crashed down on the Lannister army in the form of the Dothraki. Uh, Corey Phone, you and I talked about this briefly before the episode, uh, in the beginning of the episode, and you absolutely think the Dothraki would have wiped out the Lannister army. Yeah, they outnumbered them at least five to one, probably more than that. We just heard Randall Tarley talk about uh, the the head or the tail can't catch up to the head or whatever he said. They're so spread out. Also, not to be a nerd, but they formed a line to take on a cavalry, which is stupid. You're supposed to form a square, not to be. Uh, <laughs> well, that actually, guy. but oh yeah, well, actually, but seriously, that's that they they got in the wrong formation, didn't have time to get in the right formation, I guess. Um, even without the dragons, the okay, well, here's a good example. Think back to. Last year, Battle of the Bastards, uh, what the Vale did when they crashed in onto uh, the Bolton army, they just ran right through them. And that, that was the Bolton, that was, a, that was the Vale, and the Boltons were in a better position. I mean, the Dothraki would have broke that line, regardless if they were in a line, a square, a hexagon, doesn't matter. They would have busted through the line, and it would have been a bloodbath. Now, there would have been more Dothraki uh, casualties had the dragon not come through and sprayed fire everywhere like dragons are wont to do. But, uh, yeah, I don't think it would have mattered. And, I mean, it it all harkens back to season one. Robert Baratheon, one of the greatest warriors of all time, said that only a fool would face the Thraki in an open field, and that's because of what we finally got to see. After six and a half seasons, we finally got to see the Thraki actually, like, storm in into a battle. And it was just as impressive as we'd all hoped because holy shit, those guys are legit. They it's are like Genghis legit. Khan. Genghis Khan has a dragon. Ah! <laughs> and you know what? Uh, I mentioned this before, but I did watch that 13 minute documentary on making the, of the battle, and they they asked the, the stunt coordinator, or I forget her name, the person in charge of setting the scenes up. They said, "How can we make this better than?" She called it Bob. They said uh, D&D told her it's going to be bigger than Bob. She goes, there's no way you can top Bob. And they said, yeah, we're going to top Bob. And they said – she goes, how can we make it better? And she told the director, uh, Matt Shackman, um, well, we can make them stand up on their horses. And he's like, there's no way. You can't do that. And she goes, oh, yeah, we can do that. So like they had special uh, stirrups and stuff for the guy – for the stunt guys to stand up on the horses. And those were – you know, there's a lot of CGI put into that ep- into that battle. But the guy standing up on the horses, that's actual, real and legit, just like in the Battle of the Bastards. Um, and that one shot from Braun was amazing. That all happened exactly how, you know, the stuntmen and the paths the horse, horses took. That was all badass. But um, you're right. The Dothraki were amazing. And this is the first time uh, that, we've ta- that we've actually got to see a full Dothraki horde of screamers. In the books, they call them the Dothraki screamers, and they 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 caused pure terror in their enemies. We saw it a little bit in season season six, uh, episode nine, uh, the Battle of the Bastards, actually, when they were charging the gates of Meereen, but we only got it briefly. We didn't get the full on rumbling of the earth, uh, crashing through lines of armies and just destroying them. But um, that was probably in, in just 
pure scenes in Game of Thrones, one of my top three favorite scenes because of the sheer terror. Showing the, the Lannister guards shaking in their armor just kind of was a cherry on the top. Um, Sarah, what, what were your thoughts on this battle? What I really loved about this is that, and putting any personal feelings I have for Daenerys aside, objectively, there was no bad guy in this scene. Right. Because emotionally, you are seeing things through a few people's eyes, through Bronn, through Jaime, through Tyrion, and through Daenerys to a lesser extent, because obviously she's very focused on her dragon and on tearing shit up. But whereas before, you know, with, with Battle of the Bastards, with the Battle of the Wall, with Hardhome, there is a side that you are rooting for. You want Ramsay to get killed. You want the White Walkers to be defeated. You want the Night's Watch to triumph over the Wildlings. But here, I mean, you've seen earlier in the season, the Lannister soldiers, just because they're Lannister soldiers, it doesn't mean that they're bad people. Right. And they are people who are being roasted alive. And Jamie, with all of his history with the Mad King, is clearly horrified and can i just say jamie was a baller in this episode he was heroic i would even say he didn't leave his men when braun told him to because obviously he is the most important person in that army he's the commander but he wouldn't leave them he fought by their side he tried to charge daenerys i remember reading the the leaks and seeing Jamie charges a dragon and thinking, what the fuck? <laughs> I remember Why that. is he doing that? <laughs> That's the stupidest fucking thing he could do. I was, I was seriously saying like, is his relationship with Cersei that bad that he's like, death is preferable. But <laughs> no, he was charging Daenerys, which is why you should always actually watch the episode and not make assumptions based on the leaks. So that's what Jamie has taught me this week. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you, Dan, uh, for think... pointing that out to us every time we talk about the leaks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he always does. And I'm always like, no, this is dumb. Um, <laughs> so I, I thought that that was fantastic because there's no, there's no antagonist and protagonist. There are two sides. On both sides, you have people who you care about and who you're you're rooting for, depending on, you know, what, what your opinion is. I mean, personally, I was hoping that that lance would go straight through Daenerys' head, but that's me, and I know that that does not reflect <laughs> the opinions of most people. Most people were not saying, get her, get her, get her. Uh, so I, that's what I love about that scene. Emotionally, you were fraught, no matter what side you're on, really. Yeah. Because do we, do we want Bronn to die? Do we want Jamie to die? Do we want Daenerys to die? Most people would probably answer no to all three of them. So that is what made that scene magical. I enjoyed it more than, than Battle of the Bastards, to be honest. Yeah, it was it was very exciting. And Isis, I well, I enjoyed uh, – Sarah hit on it briefly, but the horror of this battle was seen through Jamie's eyes and through Tyrion's eyes almost simultaneously – because when Tyrion comes up to the top of the hill and he's looking out over the battle, he gets that look on his face, and Dinklage sold it, brought it home perfectly. And then they play the sad Reigns of Castamere version, like the really sad, like, oh my god, I don't want any Lannister to die now that they're playing the Reigns of Castamere really sad now. And and then you see him, the Dothraki slaughtering the soldiers, and you see... Uh, that that carriage with the horses, which, by the way, was I the only one that cared about those goddamn horses? Come on, guys. The horses are always dying in the show. What do they have against horses and direwolves? I don't know. 
but um, those horses lean that fiery carriageway, and then you see it rotate to Jamie, and he's just absolutely traumatized. He looked just for a second. He was taken out of the battle, and he was sad, and he was horrified because his men were being roasted alive in their armor. And if you know anything about the Kingslayer, he had to watch the Mad King roast other people alive in their armor. And then he looks and sees that carriage take off. So, Isis, what were your thoughts on this battle, especially with actors like uh, Peter Dinklage and NC Dubs selling these, these scenes with their, with their facial expressions? Yeah, th- this was a, a really important scene, I felt, to really kind of show, well, I guess what you call him, was it NC Dubs, whatever, uh, Jamie, the character Jamie, uh, you know, who he has always been at the core, what we knew of him at the very beginning, this cocky, arrogant, you know, guy, he, it's not, you know, the Kingslayer or whatever. Um, there's, there's a lot more levels to, to him. Uh, the fact that Tyrion was so concerned about, at the end of the day, he does not want to see his brother dead. He doesn't. And do, does he really want to see Cersei dead? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe he doesn't <laughs> want her to be in power, but he definitely, I don't know for sure if he actually wants her dead. Um, she, he definitely doesn't want to see his brother de- uh, die. And to see Jamie so triggered in that moment, it almost takes us back to every time that they have spoken about Jamie killing, uh, being the Kingslayer and, and, you know, retelling that story. Now it gives us some really some context of what he was feeling in that moment because we are watching it um, happen again. And Jamie has to be, you know, definitely uh, triggered as far as like, oh my gosh, this is happening again. And the only way he thinks that this can end is that I need to end Daenerys so the fighting will stop. Now, will the fighting stop if he did end Daenerys? No, I don't believe the fighting would stop. No, but it he would, would have ended the war. He would have he would have effectively ended the war because without Daenerys uh, at the head of the of, of the Targaryen army, her dragons are wild and uncontrolled, um, and the Dothraki would 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 have no master. They would they would just rampantly charge through Westeros. So and I and I agree with you, but at the same time, there would just be another war that would end up happening because Cersei's hunger for power. Is is too is too overwhelming. She she can't. She would only be looking at okay. I'm I'm the the queen of all of this, but not understanding that oh well we we got these White Walkers that we need to worry about. Nah, I'm not that worried about it. You know, it, it would just continue and continue on. But for for Jamie, he doesn't know all that. And for Jamie, he just sees that you know this is the way ahead. This is if I kill if I get rid of her now. Yes, I could end. And I say this with air quotes. This war and everything. Um, unfortunately. You know, I don't know what made him think that he was going to be able to get to her um, before the dragon turned his head. You know, that was just kind of crazy. Now, this also brings up a point someone mentioned, uh, I don't know, in the live tweet or something, that maybe he thought that the dragon would have died after it had been pierced with the uh, lance or whatever, or it may have been a poison lance and it just, you know, hadn't affected the dragon yet but whatever he's still a fucking idiot because he really did it 
I love him, but he was a fucking idiot, like Tyrion said, for <laughs> charging at Daenerys. But um, he's a brave idiot. He, he is, is a brave, brave idiot. idiot. That's true. Ned, I, I, Ned gave him so much shit for stabbing the Mad King in the back, and there was no going behind her back with that scene. He charged full pelt at her face, and to me, it's indicative of the fact that Jamie is eventually going to to switch to the sort of heroic side of himself. And fight for the living because that's what he was doing. He was fighting for those people who were being burned alive. He was fighting because he hated the chaos around him and the destruction. I think Jamie is a hearty hero, and I think that's what he's going to discover. So I, I found that to be quite a heroic move. Just, Stupid, but brave. Well, no, and he of, did, but he did that also with the Mad King. I mean, he yeah. knew that that he had to do that. And like I said, it just adds more context to his story that the reason he didn't do it just because he was ordered to. He did it for a reason. Yeah. Bone, you had something to say? I was just going to say point of order. She wasn't looking when he started charging at her. She turned around and surprised to see him running at her, and then the dragon saved her. I'm not taking away from his actions at all. You're 100% correct in why he was doing it, and it was very brave because he had a long way to go to get there. Uh, but it was basically him charging at the uh, Targaryen to stop the burning again. That was a great point yeah. uh, that you pulled out there. So, But she wasn't looking at first because she, <laughs> she was wasn't tugging. Looking. She was and, tugging well, at, the, at the spear. And had, uh, he launched, had, he, had he actually launched that spear he had in his hand, he might have hit her. Yeah, but he's 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 originally right-handed, so That's he could true. probably hold a spear. But throwing one it takes years of of training, and that's why the the guy that threw the spear was the New York Mets pitcher. I don't know if you guys saw. That. Yeah, we I saw that. <laughs> it finally had that little cameo. Uh, but I want to say also talking about uh, Jamie's bravery. That absolutely one hundred percent on that. I kind of thought Danny was a little bit brave because. She didn't flinch. She just turned around and stared at him. Maybe she knew Drogon was going to react. Maybe she was shocked. But she yeah. was standing there. She turned around. She didn't back away. She didn't flinch. She didn't put her hands up in a defensive posture. She just let Drogon be Drogon. I thought it was kind of badass. Um, I haven't heard from Corey Smith much on the actual battle. Corey Smith, let me ask you, what did you think of Bronn's uh, Jon Snow one-shot? he had through this battle yeah um so yeah i definitely thought the second it didn't hit me the first time but the second time i, I definitely there was a call back to john's long shot through battle of the bastards you know braun is racing across the battlefield to that uh scorpion that they have hidden in the wagon and he's got to face all these obstacles and flaming wagons and all this shit and and finally gets there, and he kills that one uh, Dothraki guy. Spectacularly, um, by the way. Yeah, with a giant scorpion bolt through the chest, uh, which was pretty awesome. But, you know, and then he loads up the scorpion, and and look, as a hunter who's tried to shoot things out of the sky, I understand that Drogon is big as shit, but do you know how freaking hard it is to hit something in the sky that's moving from the ground? It's like, it, it takes a shit ton of practice and a lot of freaking luck. And so, I mean, I was watching that scene and yeah, he misses the first time, but then the second time he's dead on. And it was, you know, when Drogon kind of screeches when he gets nailed out, oof, that was kind of hard for, Dude, for when, when Dante interrupted, but when that happened, 
like the the music tone changed. Mm-hmm. Drogon was like spiraling out of control, kind of. Yes, I was like, holy shit! They just like and then and then like he goes, he just and then like gets up and is like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> and it's like, oh, way to throw me off there, music cues. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> what was fucking badass about Drogon regaining himself and landing is after he torches the scorpion that uh, that that bronze on, he lands and then like a petulant child. Destroys it with his tail. <laughs> like yes, dude, that was hilarious. Fuck this was like, scorpion fuck in particular. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> that was pretty awesome. I mean, I think every single freaking detail of the entire last—I think it's actually like twelve minutes. Every detail of the last twelve minutes, from the when the battle starts, you know, when you start hearing the Dothraki, to when Drogon's grounded and Jamie charges, every freaking second of it was just pure perfection. You know. And we got to see we I, I especially like seeing from Tyrion's point of view um just he sees the dragons and those those dragons are on his side, right? Danny's on his side, but he sees the sheer just level of devastation that they're unleashing that's almost completely unfair to the Lannister forces. You know, yeah. and and it it's so brutal that it's enough to, even though those dragons are on his side and they're winning a battle for him, it, it it's so brutal that he can't help but kind of be stunned is what I, I got out of that scene. And, you know, so, Tyrion is absolutely a pacifist. I mean, I know he led men in the Battle of the Blackwater, but he likes to win things with his mind. And going back to last season, he actually turned his head whenever uh, Grey Worm killed the Masters with that one slice across their neck. He turned his head. He didn't even want to watch that. So this, for him to have to watch his own family's men, probably, I mean, I don't know I don't know that he actually recognized any of those guys, but these were his house's soldiers, and they got absolutely obliterated. And his brother was there and almost died, and for all he knows, his brother is dead. He doesn't know. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen to Janie, which, by the way, what a fucking cliffhanger. If you did not know what was going to happen in this show... Corey Thone, you you are a connoisseur of fine TV. How did you like that that cliffhanger? I'm so dumb. What? Like I really, <laughs> it, I really hated it. Like first off, and this is again, this is me just being the kind of guy that points out like uh, continuity errors in, in shows and movies. Mm-hmm. But he's he's running his horse through the water because it's <laughs> ankle deep, and then he's tackled, and it's the Mariana Trench, and. <laughs> That's annoying. And secondly, it's not a cliffhanger because Jamie's not going to die in the water. Like, that's <laughs> not going to happen. Brian might be dead, I guess, but I doubt it. But Jamie's not going to drown, and we're just never – he's going to Jack Dawson down to the bottom of this trench that is just <laughs> running to the middle of Westeros and never be seen or heard from again. That's, come on. It's not a cliffhanger. It's like when Sansa and Theon jumped off the wall. Don't do that shit. We know they're not dead. Why did you have them Thelma and Louise it? It made no sense. So I, it's one of those things where it's like you don't have to have a cliffhanger at the end of this massive battle. Like you didn't do it in the Battle of the Bastards, and that was a way bigger and less like clear what was happening type battle. This was just an ass whipping, right? Yeah. So I, I mean, I don't know. I just thought it was, I thought it was silly. Whenever, because first off, it ended eight minutes short. 
So oh, this you're was telling the shortest me you episode of the season, yeah. Yeah. So you're telling me you couldn't have somebody, you know, run their hand in there, uh, you know, Samwise Gamgee style and pull out <laughs> Frodo from the deep water and everything? Like, Mr. Frodo! Yeah, I, anyway, I, I know that I'm a, I'm a dick because everybody loved the ending. I just thought it was – I loved the ending until the last, like, four seconds when we got – because I, I saw somebody put side-by-side side the picture of, of, like, when Bran was falling and that was the end of an episode. That's a cliffhanger, by the way. And because uh, we didn't know if Bran was going to die or not. We didn't know what just happened. But at this point, six and a half seasons in, I know that Jamie's not going to die. He's not going to sink all the way to the bottom. So whatever. Uh, maybe I'm just a prick. Sorry. Well, you are definitely, but I mean, you have a good point, Sarah. You wanted you had something to say about Braun before we wrap up. Yeah, can I congratulate the writers for giving him a bit of character development? Yeah, absolutely. Because he was so he's so obsessed with money. I mean, he's such a slut for it. <laughs> and then he drops his money bag. You know, he's looking at it, thinking, "Should I just take this and run?" But no, he goes and finds a scorpion. He he shoots a dragon, and that is him. With his fingerless gloves and the white horse he was eyeing, <laughs> pushing Jamie into the water. So he put himself at risk to save Jamie. Whether or not it's because Jamie is his big bag of gold or because he actually cares about the Lannister brothers, I think it's maybe a combination of both. He yeah. still did an incredibly brave and selfless thing, which is not like Bronn at all. He jumped in front of a fucking dragon about to breathe flame. I think it's more than just, oh, there's my there's my mill ticket going up in smoke. Yeah, I mean, he, absolutely. Uh, he, he, went, he found where Jamie was, and he was basically a heat-seeking missile. And RIP yeah. those two horses, by the way. My God. Uh, but Jamie... Jamie's white horse. I know. So which one is that? Jamie is that honor has, or glory? I can't remember which one. I don't know if they ever named him know, in the show. I don't know, but ever since Jamie came back from his journey with Brienne, he's been on a white horse, which to me was symbolic of his better nature. And mm-hmm. the horse is dead. And I'm that, That's R.I.P. the horse, because that's the worst casualty of all of this. <laughs> the horse. I'm devastated. Well, um, we... We don't know what's going to happen. We, obviously, we don't think Jamie's going to die, but I am interested in seeing how Jamie gets out of this little pickle. He's a one-handed man with a heavy gold He'll swim, 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 swimming. Swimming is the answer. He's going to swim with one hand. The things we do when you fall in water. Sorry, I'm just. He's going to swim with one hand attached to a golden lead, a golden weight, and and he's fully armored, well, so yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing, and I and I just want to add real quick, that's going to be the key point. Does Jamie choose life and leave the armor of the Lannisters and that golden hand given by his sister, you know, in the water, or is he going to drown on his on his loyalty to the Lannisters and, and his sister. I'm of the opinion he's going to be saved by Bronn again. Bronn was when you when you watch that scene, I've I, I've taken the screen caps and I've lightened them up real a lot, and I've seen Bronn goes in with him, and the camera quickly switches to Jamie floating down on his back, but Bronn is actually at a swimmer's arc. Like he actually goes in. So I think Bronn's probably going to pivot. Bronn doesn't wear armor. Bronn's not Bronn's wearing armor wore- exactly. Right. He, I think he's gonna. Bronn is a merman. He is a That's right. It's not. Yeah, Varys. we've all been we've all been thinking it was Varys. It's it's Bronn. He's gonna little mermaid him out of there. Then he's gonna <laughs> serenade him on the bank. It's gonna be beautiful. Oh my god, he's Sebastian. Jamie, the sea the seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. <laughs> no, no. 
Anyway, you know, um, you know what? Gal Gadot is going to dive in and save them both. There you go. That's <laughs> oh, right. There it is. That, that, that's the picture we want. Um, we've got the next episode is going to be called East Watch, and if you paid attention to the, the season premiere, um, the Hound has his vision of the Night King's army marching toward East Watch by the sea. That's the last night, uh, the last night's watch castle on the wall. So Night King is headed that way. The Hound, the Hound sees it, and I think we're going to see hopefully the Hound in the next episode with the Brotherhood Without Banners. Maybe we'll see Tormund uh, main the castle, like the the Night's Watch baller that he is, and then maybe we get Gendry. I don't know. We gotta see. We gotta see Gendry, but um. I don't know, guys. This next episode is going to be 59 minutes long, and there is a lot to happen. Um, by the way, if you saw the trailer, Drogon is on a hill where Danny is threatening to kill people if they don't bend the knee. And the next dragon she's on is not Drogon. When she's threatening John, she's threatening John with Rhaegal, the other smaller dragon. And I believe we might see a little symbolism here because... Rhaegal was named for Rhaegar, John's father. Might be a little pretty cool little thing they call back to. Hopefully, I don't know if they will or not. But um, it's going to be an exciting episode. And guys, that's only three left. Can you believe that? We only have three episodes left until possibly 2019. I'm going to be – I I know. I can't even think about it without getting sad. But um, anyway, Sarah, didn't you have a song about a dragon? I, I, I remember hearing it somewhere. Did I have a song about a dragon? You did. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Something about call oh, me maybe? This, oh, was this, hey, I just met you and this is crazy, but bend the knee. I'll help you maybe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. That's that's basically John and Daenerys in the cave. I had that song stuck in my head all fucking day. That's great. That's awesome. Um, I'm not sorry, Corey. Yeah, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> guys thanks for listening to the podcast we'll be back next week to cover east watch and um if you have any comments or questions leave them in if you want to blast sarah for hating on danny which somebody always does since she's joined the podcast last time or when she writes something about danny let him let let her have it she can take it um and and by the way sorry we didn't get to any of your comments that you tweeted to us we will try to respond back this was a lot to talk about guys and we almost gone two hours so thanks for sticking with us we'll talk to you next week This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.